heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to this edition of The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, your guest host, sitting in today for Malcolm Out Loud. You know, it's always an honor to be a guest host on his show, and there is always a lot to talk about. Today, we'll be doing something a little different. I have a special guest, and we're going to spend the next hour talking about the cost of free speech and the need to preserve the nation's values of individual freedom and personal responsibility. Welcome to today's edition of The Voice of a Nation. My guest today is a man who has stood for free speech throughout his life. Rabbi Jonathan Hausman is a man who has woven his personal belief in constitutional America, in freedom of speech, and Judeo-American values into his life and put them on the line as a core part of who he is and what he stands for. Jonathan Hausman is a true son of liberty, so I'm proud to have him with me today on The Voice of a Nation. Welcome, John. Nice to be with you, Alana. You know, it's very, it's clear, at least to me, that all of our God-given freedoms that are protected by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights begin with one essential freedom and one essential fact, and that is the ability to express ourselves as we see fit. Listen, I'm one of these guys who believes don't censor speech, don't censor any speech. You know, let the Nazis have their say, let the far leftists have their say. People will say to me, well, you really want the Nazis to be able to march? And yes, let them march. It's because what will defeat them is not censoring their attitudes and their expressions, but what will defeat them is the ability to challenge them in the marketplace of ideas. And how do you do that if you have no venues, no forms to use to to disseminate discernment and truth and and rigorous analysis? So years ago, I ended up developing a free speech center out of my synagogue. And listen, uh, my only rule was very simple. The people I brought in had to be pro-Israel. I was funding it. And it's the only thing. Otherwise, I didn't care if somebody was a Democrat, Republican. I just didn't care. And I brought in people from across the spectrum to discuss, to present diverse ideas in academia, uh, as historians, theologians, diplomats, military, retired military personnel. So my synagogue and my community would be able to interact with people who were at the fulcrum of decision-making and in some cases power within the United States. Who, who were some of the people you brought in to speak? Honestly, the list is so, so large and so wide. 
I had Israeli ambassador Yoram Ettinger. I had Israeli archaeologists uh, Gabby Barkai and Ehud Netzer. I had Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. I had Lieutenant General Tom McInerney. I had former CIA station chief Gary Bernson. I had the founder of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, Asaf Romorowski, and a number of people with whom Asaf works speak at the synagogue. I had Dick Morris speak. I had Pat Cadell speak. If people who might know of the great political cartoon satirist uh, out of Israel, uh, Dry Bones. Dry oh, Bones, oh the yes. Over there, Dry Bones. Yeah. Okay. Yaakov Kirshner, he spoke at the synagogue. The fellow who p- developed the security protocols at Logan Airport following 9-11, Rafi Rohn, he spoke at the synagogue. And, and, and I'm just giving you a smattering. I've had people who were at the center of the free speech movement in Europe speak at the synagogue, like Elizabeth Sabatich Wolf and Danish historian Lars Hedegaard. I even, listen, I even had Geert Wilders, the Dutch parliamentarian speaker, Robert uh, Spencer, uh, and like I said, the list just goes on. And you also had uh, speakers like Mark Stein, Wafa Sultan, Claire Lopez, Jerry Gordon, Hugh Fitzgerald. That's quite an impressive speakers list. It was a real cross-section of a lot of people from a lot of diverse, diverse professions, diverse areas come and present. And they all came to your synagogue in Stoughton, Massachusetts to speak to your audiences who were truly very interested in what they had to say. I attended many of these and I do remember that your audiences were large and I remember that they felt that what they were hearing was very important and they appreciated the opportunity to have such speakers come near to where they lived and hear them in person. So over the years, it's just the numbers are just so voluminous. And then what happened? What was a, a, a trigger that changed all this? Every couple of years, I, along with my organizing team, would, would organize some kind of summit based around the issue of national security, American national security. And in one instance, we organized a summit around the Israel-U.S. relationship and how that affects national security, not just for Israel, but for the United States. So, for example, we entitled that one the Israel Security Summit. That was in 2014. And our guest speakers for that program were Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. So if anybody who may not know of him, that is Black Hawk Down Boykin. That's who we're talking about. Lieutenant General Tom McInerney, who at that point in time was the most decorated U.S. fighter pilot ever. We had Gary Bernson, who was the CIA station chief, set up the Hezbollah desk for the CIA and whatnot. And our moderator for that evening was Lieutenant Colonel and former Representative Alan West. So that's just one example of the kind of talent we brought in for these kinds of uh, these kinds of events. In 2016, our thought was to present a summit that dealt with national security chaos. Are we passing the tipping point? General Boykin returned. Frank Gapney from the Center for Security Policy came in that evening. Claire Lopez came in that evening. 
And the special guest that evening was former Representative Michelle Bachman. Our moderator for the evening was Tom Trentel of the United West. You know, John, many of your speakers were controversial, and so were their topics. How did you deal with the press and the message that you wanted to get out about the purpose of these presentations? You know, we, we always did our best to try to keep a hand on PR media with regard to what was projected into the public sphere regarding the events that we were uh, we were hosting. There were people in the greater Boston community who took exception to the array of talent who were brought in for that evening and organized protests in front of the synagogue. It caused a media circus around my rabbinate. You know, really, really caused some distress for the program. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew phrase that is above our ark in the synagogue, which reads, you know, know before whom you stand. And listen, it, it was a charge for the program because we were talking about people who were speaking on the, on the program that evening were people of supreme faith. And, you know, what do you need to do if you're involved with American security issues, national security issues, if if you forget that this country was founded, A, on freedom of speech, B, freedom of religion, and, and C, the country was founded, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were meant for a, as John Adams said, meant for a religious people. So, Dalif Nehmi Atalmed, know before whom you stand, we're talking about, and, and it was pointed out that evening by me, that we're talking about, you know, the needs to safeguard religious and national integrity for the Jewish people, for the American people. Now, while this program was going on, there were demonstrations outside, right? But what ended up happening, the people who ended up protesting, uh, community leaders who showed up that evening and professionals who were expressing deep concern uh, for the sens sensitivities of this country and where we stand, you know, we were, we were faced with protesters outside, a media onslaught and all kinds of combinations by those who were denying Jewish history, were denying American nationhood. And one really had to wonder, as, as I said in a, an interview that was published shortly after the event, maybe people have really forgotten before whom they stand or whether they knew before whom they stood in the first place. The protesters who were outside were a conglomeration of a number of groups. Council of America Islamic Relations sent some people down uh, to protest. The Islamic Center of uh, Society of Boston sent some people down to protest in league with a number of students from the rabbinical school at Boston Hebrew College. Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I ended up being censured by the Massachusetts Board of Rabbis, which was very interesting because I was never a member of the group. So how can you censor some? Yeah, it just shows you how stupid they were. If I can say that on the air, they were absolutely dumb. You can say anything on the air here because this is a free speech station. Oh, thank you. So, I mean, it was just, just really, really stupid on their part. There was a petition circulated 
by a coalition of about 200 clergy throughout the greater Boston area. They were members of various groups and various religious denominations and various religions, some 200, uh, demanding that the synagogue relieve me of my contract. We had people in the press deeming the synagogue to be a house of hate, you know, and including a number of people here in town where I live and for whom I'd done an inordinate amount of community work over the years, it became a circus. And, you know, as I said to the fellow who was the president of the Mass Board, Massachusetts Board of Rabbis at the time, who said they're all haters. And I said, according to whom? He said, well, the the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. I oh, said, my gosh. Yeah. Well, that was my response, too. I said, you're you're, you're saying that that Lieutenant General, three star General Jerry Boykin, former undersecretary of defense for intelligence. Okay, a founder of Delta Force, commander, former commander of Delta Force, former Green Beret. You're talking Frank Gaffney, former deputy assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs, founder of the director of the Center for Security Policy at the fulcrum of a lot of what takes place in terms of security policy in Washington, D.C. Well, Frank Gaffney has been a target of the Southern Poverty Law Center for many years. Yeah, and so is and so is General Boykin. And so is General Boykin. You, you know, and and listen to General Boykin as the executive vice president of the, of the Family Research Council. You know, it was based on information that was published by the Southern Poverty Law Center that led some a, a person to attack the FRC and shoot people in the lobby there. You know, it is probably not an understatement. To say that the Southern Poverty Law Center is probably the largest and most powerful hate group in the country. They are the ones who are continually accusing patriotic or religious or both organizations across the United States of being hate groups, when in fact they are the ones that are spewing the most hate in the most directions and hurting the most Americans. You know, and, and it was very interesting because you had a couple of people who said, Michelle Bachman, you, you know, how can you host somebody as stupid as Michelle Bachman? And my response was, listen, you can disagree with anybody you want in Congress, but you're talking about somebody who ran for president, who was the former co-chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, who can get up and speak for an hour without a note in front of her, who was a practicing tax attorney and could argue without having a ledger sheet in front of her. You you can disagree with her, but stupid, she's not. You know, and Tom Trento, you're talking about one of the co-authors of the Team B2 report, you know, and exercising competitive analysis regarding what's taking place uh, in the United States regarding Muslim Brotherhood affiliated movements here. And to look at those issues in the same way that the original Team B report that Ronald Reagan used as his template to actually confront the Soviet Union as not just a competitor of the United States, but in a bipolar world, looking at, at the Soviet Union as an entity that wanted to take down the United States. There, there was a massive amount of, of brain power 
on the dais that evening, but the other side took a big exception to it. It was it was interesting. The local media TV stations came down, did try to do hackneyed reports on me personally. What was the outcome to all this? John? Well, it was very interesting. Yet, you know, though we've always had this uh, diverse array of participants and and journalists and free speech advocates from all over the world, and irrespective of the fact that that the form itself became a regular stop for many high-profile guests, some some of whom, Alana, you and I are personally friendly with and have been over the years. The events before the swirl, I have to tell you, we only had reservations for 53 people. I'm pulling up the numbers as I'm talking to you because I keep a record of all this stuff. Okay, we had 53 people. Okay, so 53 people were registered to attend just hours before the event was to start, and you and your synagogue were already being threatened by a host of people and organizations. Now, hold on to that thought, listeners, because right after the break, we will be right back to continue this story about the threat to free speech in Stoughton, Massachusetts, and to all of us who believe in liberty. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm on The Voice of a Nation. We'll be right back. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural, too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. And I'm talking today to Rabbi Jonathan Hausman about the First Amendment and the attacks that we are facing on the freedom of speech every day. And in particular, about the very dramatic attacks that he faced right outside his synagogue. Okay, Jonathan, we left off with 53 people who were registered to attend your conference just hours before it was to begin. What happened next? 
Well, the interesting thing is this all hit the airwaves 36 hours ahead of the events. 36 hours. Okay. And just as a aside, before we get back to what happened, I had offered to share all the contents of the events with the president of the Massachusetts Board of Robberies to show him that this was not a, a, a hate event and he refused to meet with me. You know, that's something I don't understand. And we'll talk about that more in the next segment. But this this whole idea of not being willing to have a conversation, in my opinion, is so un-American. Yeah. And, and, and listen, and un-Jewish too, as a matter of fact, because if, if questions and answers and dialogue and arguing is not part of the Jewish tradition, then tell me why, how you could come into my office as you've been in my office to see all the rabbinic tongues festooning <laughs> the bookshelves. Sure. You wouldn't sure. have any of that. The Jewish tradition is based on pilpul, the, the discussion right. of these tiny little issues to, and the discussion to death. I mean, just to, right. forever and ever, you just keep discussing things. And eventually, you know, hopefully you get to some sort of a conclusion. But the, the bottom yeah. line is that you have to have the discussion. Yeah. And, you know, to receive a message and a call notifying that the members of the Mass Board of Rabbis, which is an association that's overwhelmingly liberal when it comes to religious tradition. Okay, I'm not talking politics, but that they would be condemning the event in conjunction with a number of non-Jewish clergy and to say, listen, everything you're doing is, is, is racist and bigoted and Islamophobic. And I still don't understand what that neologism actually means. You know, I said, listen, where'd you get your information? So I got yeah. the information from the Massachusetts chapter of the Council of America Islamic Relations. They're planning to protest the event. I said, listen, I'll meet with you. I'll bring everything and show you. You know, I, I'm disputing the claim as a courtesy. I'm offering I'll come to you. I'll come to your office. We'll put it completely on your terms to discuss the program contents to, to give you an advanced opportunity to review and determine whether it was the, the charges were in fact biased. And despite yeah. the offer, you know, the program was condemned. So what ended up happening is a program that probably had nothing that occurred would have drawn 53 people. We ended up with 300 people that evening. <laughs> so, you know, tongue in cheek, you and I can both laugh. But, you know, as I said to a, a couple of colleagues of mine, I'm not talking about rabbinic colleagues. I'm talking about colleagues who are also involved in national security work. It was like saying, thank you. What would have been a big loser of a program, it turned into a success. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had 300 people. What we always do, though, what we always did, though, for, for any of these kinds of programming is you were not allowed to bring in any recorded devices. We still have security at regular services, but we have security at all of the events. And I can't tell you how many people from the media had their recording devices confiscated. We actually had to call the police on NPR, literally, and have the NPR hauled down to the police station that night. Wow. So the, the bottom line, John, is that you did not cancel the event, the conference, and you did not lose your pulpit, right? No. I mean, I was subject to a number of misleading media reports. I received information through confidential sources concerning potential disruptions that necess necessitated tightened security. So we had our normal security and 
I made arrangements to bring in the tri-county SWAT team. So my thing is, you're going to try for check? Well, I'm going to checkmate you right out of the box. That's what I did. Yeah, you know, and I don't want to mislead any of the any of the listeners. I mean, look, the threat of what some people call radicalism was certainly discussed. Okay, but I have to tell you that, you know, there were also talks about moderates in dialogue. Uh, there were also talk about since my master's degree, part of my master's degree is in economics. Part of the discussion dealt with with uh, economic growing economic insecurity based on expansion of money supply and debt, something that has continued and is still an issue today. Okay, uh, you know there were a whole range of topics. Immigration was was discussed that evening. There were a whole range of issues that were discussed uh, from the dais. Uh, had anybody really deigned to attend the program. I really think in a sober moment, here we are years removed from it, that, you know, what happened here, I did not lose my pulpit, but I will tell you that my ability program was was uh, certainly circumscribed by the synagogue lay leadership, and they did so without even giving me the courtesy of a seat at the table for the discussions. So my feeling was, all right, well, if you're going to, if you're going to do that for these kinds of programs and all the other programs I bring in for fundraising, the music events, nationally renowned acts played at synagogue, because I, I happen to have a wide circle of friends in the entertainment industry. Listen, I mean, for those people who are Boston based or into rock and roll and R and B, the Jay Giles Band, one of the great bands out of Boston. I had a number of their alumni play the synagogue. Okay, nationally renowned comedians like Jimmy Tingle and and Lenny Clark and Stephen Wright played the synagogue. My feeling is, listen, you don't trust me about one thing, you trust me about nothing. You guys can program. Goodbye. I don't have to program. My contract doesn't call for. Me. So your role in bringing high value program to the synagogue which would have been, it seems to me, a huge fundraising resource for them, that role was essentially over. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, at the synagogue, I've done other things outside the synagogue, but I will not bring in anything to the synagogue. I really think in a sober moment, what we're talking about, and to be able to reflect, it really is reflective of a, and I think you can put it writ large, but, you know, a Jewish liberal establishment that seems more concerned about the risks of anything else rather than the actual incidents of, you know, the, the real subjects of real anti-Semitism and the sources from whence anti-Semitic acts and, and hatreds are actually emanating today. You know, it's all about the other and not anything about our own. So, you know, we had a lot of Jewish liberals who were quick to, and general liberals around here too, who are quick to criticize those who discuss the role of anything that could be termed radical. You know, when you're talking about this, it isn't just about anti-Semitism or the Jewish liberal response to anti-Semitism. It's also about the perception of liberals that Republicans or conservatives are radical in their thinking because we don't agree with their points of view, and therefore, this is something bad and has to be censured 
or even, as they say, canceled. Now, John, I'd like to bring this conversation around to how your own experience reflects where we have come in America, how we have come to a point here where we cannot discuss real issues civilly, where discussions become riots, and where freedom of speech is at great risk to the point of being totally destroyed. Where would you like to begin, Jonathan? Because there's so much to talk about. And listen, not only am I a rabbi, but I also happen to have a law degree, and I did practice a little bit. So, you know, how I look at, how I look at free speech is really through this twin lens of clergy on the one hand and attorney on the other. You know, what we know as the First Amendment and its ratification really took shape in the 1780s and came to fruition by the time you get to the adoption of the Constitution. So if I'm remembering the language correct, you know, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So that's the establishment clause or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And our founding fathers, and in particular the founders of the the Constitution, so you're talking about Madison and Monroe and, you know, a lot of those people out of Virginia, as well as a couple other people who are not Virginians, but they believe that the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment were really the fountain for the ultimate triumphs of of reason and humanity over oppression and error. And and Madison wrote about that. So here you have this new nation that was founded on these kinds of freedoms, but you you had various experiences of a backsliding into censorship almost right from the start. I mean, you know, for those of us who know U.S. history, not that it's really taught in schools these days anymore, but yeah, in 1798, John Adams is president. We have the Alien Sedition Acts, okay? Uh, meant to say, right, you, have, you have suppression of political speech in, in the early 1800s, okay, through the end of the War of 1812. You have political riots in the United States in the 1830s. You know, you have the great political speeches of Abraham Lincoln and his runs for Congress and run for president that really defined what political speech and free speech is all about. And, you know, it wasn't until we we reached the early part of the 20th century did the U.S. Supreme Court really address the issue of censorship. And that was in a case out of 1919, uh, Abrams versus the United States, where, where Louis Brandeis wrote, the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the marketplace. It was the sanitizing light of exposure and argument that would lend credence to the weight or fallacy of a position. So it took all that time after the establishment of this country for 
a real ruling prohibiting censorship. And here we are another century later where free speech, while the unambiguous law of the land is nonetheless losing its power over public opinion. And you see it in the polling data that comes out regarding the younger generations who really feel that there's a, a limit for free speech. And, and you have a many, many people who claim to support freedom of expression regularly, but they then turn around to suppress the views of others. We see it on university campuses. We see it in the press. We see it in social media. It's no surprise to anybody who follows news reporting, reputable news reporting, the contractants that have been bandied about following Elon Musk's first offer and subsequent purchase of Twitter. And you would think that all varieties of speech, unless you're yelling fire in a crowded theater, which is an exception, okay? But other than putting people at extreme physical danger, that all varieties of speech should be deemed deserving of protections. Interestingly, I have a member of my synagogue who argued with me because my feeling was, listen, it's very simple. If the Nazi, American Nazi party wants to go out and march, let them go out and march. Rabbi, how can you for what they stand for and what the, I said, listen, I get, I understand all of that. I said, but you know, either you have freedom of speech applying to everyone or it applies to no one. And the best way to counteract what the American Nazi party wants to do is to go out them and engage them in the marketplace of ideas and expression. You know, one of the things that I have noticed is that there seems to be a feeling among young people that there is a right not to have your feelings hurt. Oh, well, that's very nice, but where in the Constitution says that your <laughs> right to well, ends where, at my right to be, uh, to, to be offended, okay? I, I, I mean, listen, Alana, I've seen it, I've read it, I hear it, I disagree with it, okay? But, you know, the real answer is you get that kind of answer because the answer with regard to speech that's not deserving of the shield of the First Amendment, the answer is, is culture. You know, culture helps us determine the appropriateness of speech by balancing rights as enshrined in the Constitution with understandings of context. You know, you take a look at this, you take a look, culture, right, because it's your vision of culture. Yes. Okay, it's your vision. So, you know, it's, it's not, this is why I tell people, you know, in, in the synagogue, if you want to live, to live a life of objective, ethical, and moral standing, then you live your life according to the mitzvot. You live your life according to the commands that God gave, to, well, from our point of view, that God gave the Jewish people. If you don't do that, then, then morality and ethics can become subjective. And as my mother, may she rest in peace, always said, she said, you know, it's our, and listen, listen, my brothers and I, we treated our mother like lots of kids treated their mothers. You know, you, you gave her short shrift. We didn't think she was so smart. But, you know, as I've gotten older and reflected when my mother was alive on some of the things she was saying, and now she's been gone 
for a decade. Some of the things that she said, you know, my mother was, she, she apprehended the world smartly and intuitively. And she said, you do understand that everything the Nazis did was legal and from their point of view, ethical. Wow. No, and you, listen, you're a teenager. How can you say that? But then you start studying German history and the Nazis enacted all the enabling laws that led yes. up to and the adoption of the Nuremberg laws. And my mother was absolutely right. And, and the Nazis were able to do that because of what they did to German culture at the time. That is an explosive, extraordinary observation on the part of your mother. It's something I, for one, have never thought about. We have one more break, and when we come back, we'll explore this idea some more, the role that culture plays in the laws that we obey or choose not to obey or change. How does it affect the lives we live and the world we live in? You're listening to The Voice of the Nation. I'm your host, Alana Friedman, proud to be sitting in for Malcolm today. We'll be right back with the final segment of our show and our conversation with Rabbi Jonathan Hausman. So stay tuned. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com liberty and justice for all. Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens both in the air and on surfaces in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Welcome back to The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. And today, I'm talking to Rabbi Jonathan Hauser about the kind of culture that we live in that either stimulates or stifles free speech, liberty, and democracy. Tell me, Jonathan, what do you think are the standards of culture that we should be looking for when we assess our own culture and the potential for continuing to live according to our values in a cultural environment that is changing radically. An objective standard meetings, and, and listen, I am, I am a, a person of extreme faith, and, and it is what I do for a living as a rabbi. I'm clergy. 
if God is the fountainhead, then you have an objective standard. If God is not the fountainhead, and the Torah is not what it says you can be, then how you act in this world becomes subjective. You know, it's defined by, it's man-made. Ethics is man-made. Now, how do we take this, this, this whole point about the Nazis creating the legal system under which they could do what they did? How do we apply that now? We see what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. And, and how it's reported. And how, and how it's reported. And you see also what's happening here in the United States, where everything is becoming subjective. And, right. and the, and let, the me throw, let me throw out, let me, listen, I'm going to do a rabbi thing. You're asking me the question. I'm going to answer the question I want to answer, okay? Yes. Let, let me throw something out to you that I, that I would, listen, if I said recently, I can't tell you if it was last week or, or it was six months ago because, <laughs> you know, you, you, listen, you and I are a lot alike. We read yes. prodigiously and, okay, that's just what we do. That's what we do. In order to determine how how you begin to write the ship you have to understand where you are you know you got to understand the problem there is a very dire view of open speech of free speech and and we don't just find that on what some people would say the fringe element and you know okay they say that so let's just dismiss what they say listen to this more college students than ever claim to have reservations about free expression. I mean, this was just reported in, in the website Legal Insurrection, William Jacobson's website. It's okay. terrifying. Let me, throw, let me throw a couple of stats out for you and the listening audience. 44% of surveyed students told the Brookings Institution now, the Brookings Institution is an institution on the political uh, liberal side, left yes. of center. Yes. Okay. Mind you, I'm not saying that they're leftist. I'm not saying I'm, they're just left of center. Okay. Which is very interesting because I was always a centrist. And then the political center ended up moving. And now people say, oh, you're, you're right wing Republican, <laughs> which is very interesting because, you know, in Massachusetts, I happen to be unenrolled which is what, you know, if you're not a member of a, if you don't register with a political party to vote, that's what you are here. I'm registered to vote, but not with a political party. So, you know, this is from the Brookings Institute. 44% of responding students said they do not believe that the First Amendment protects free speech. You believe that? 39% says that the First Amendment does. And you and I both know that by the plain meaning of the text, the First Amendment protects free speech. I mean, it, it protects you from government intervention in your right to free speech. I mean, if you're, if you're in a private marketplace, the synagogue can say, you can come in and speak, and you can't. You know, it's a private entity, okay? How about this one? And this is the one that should shock listeners shock them a full 20 percent of of those polled by the brookings institute maintain that it's acceptable to inflict physical harm on those deemed to have made offensive and or hurtful statements 
Now, huh. if that's the case, who determines what's an offensive statement? That's what I meant before when I said that it's all become subjective and right. that if, if these young people don't understand that they do not have the right to not be offended, that if you believe in free speech, you have to have the right to speak freely. And even right. if that offends somebody, you have that right. Then you, right. you have to face the consequences, maybe. That's but right. you have the That's right. right. And, but but if, you act, if you act in accordance to the opinion that I just, that I just uh, shared from, from polling data from the Brookings Institute, who determines what's offensive and, and how you deal with it? Is it you? Is it me? Is it the courts? Is it, is it Antifa? Is it, is it Southern Poverty Law Center? Is it Black Lives Matter? Is it, is it you know, the American Jewish Committee? Is it the Anti-Defamation League? Who decides at its end point leads to the breaking of the constitutional social compact under which this country has, has, has been governed for 230 some odd years? And your question, who decides? I think the answer is under the present circumstances, it's the individual who decides whether the speech is appropriate. And it's exactly why we cannot have a civil conversation with people who don't agree with us. You, you can't. You, it's impossible. You know, I remember my father, may he rest in peace, he's been gone for, for 40 years already. My father saying, you don't like what's on TV? That's why it has an on-off switch. Turn it off. Exactly. Don't listen yeah. to it. You know, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that they don't have the right to express themselves. And my my old man, he was a he was a lawyer too. You know, the rights that Madison and Monroe and the rest of the constitutional fathers worked to preserve, they did so in the name of reason. They did so in the name of a common humanity. And I sit back as a rabbi and take a look at what's happening in and culture, and I'm talking about American culture. And it seems to me that we have these elements of dictatorship through culture that has wormed its way into the professoriate, academia, culture, meaning what you see on television, what's portrayed in the movies, music and it is leading inexorably and i think more rapidly than some people would like to admit a tribalization of america rather than a united constitutional republic i think you're right and when we look at what happened in the summer of 2019 when we had riots and looting and destruction, horrible destruction in many of our major cities. That, that tribalization is really what we were seeing. The breakdown of, of organized society that turned into the pitting of social groups, one against the other, blacks against whites, police against civilians, and so forth. And it became not just the destruction of property, but the destruction or the intended destruction of people. 
It was very tribal. And one thing led to another, and then it became the destruction of history, the rewriting of history, the recreation of history, in order to create the fiction and make it reality that some of us are victims and the others are the people who created the victims, who made the victimhood possible. And there were calls for reparations for people who were descendants of the original victims. It became a new history based on fantasy, based on fiction. But it was the standard on which the new fabricated history was built and taught to our children. When you destroy your history, what do you have? Well, you destroy your history, then you end up, it ends up being replaced and rebuilt by anything that the governing powers want it to be, whatever those governing powers may be. But you have nothing I to mean, learn is, from. Right, listen, I mean, it is George Orwell's 1984 writ large. I mean, and, and in effect, what you end up seeing with this tribalization, it, it, it really seems to be for those people who, who, who study um, social trends and whatnot, you know, in terms of education and, 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 and things of that sort, it seems to be the Frankfurt School of Social Research transplanted here from Frankfurt, Germany to the United States in 1922, 1923. Yeah. You see it writ large and, you know, it's been this hundred year march through the cultural institutions of the United States. And here we are, it's almost as if, listen, and, and it is, I mean, because the Frankfurt School of Social Research, which had Herbert Marcuse and it had uh, it had uh, Saul Alinsky, you know, and, and those kinds of people, yeah, they took a look at this long march with the cultural institutions in order to take apart, to tribalize society, in order to rebuild society. First, you have to destroy before you rebuild in terms of this different vision or different belief that you have in terms of what America should be. And it's not the, Amer the, the America they want to see is not the America that you and I know and, and, and believe. It's a different worldview. John, where do you think we're going? Where do you think this is taking us and how do we fix it? I'm better, if you don't want to know something, I'm, I'm much better at diagnosing the problem. <laughs> than, uh, no, because, because look, listen, you, you can't, to all the listeners, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I'm punting on, the, on, the, on an answer here, but I don't think enough people have really come to the task of, of reconciling Gramsci and Marcuse and how they've come out of the, the Marxist worldview. It's, it's no longer the working class is oppressed. It's, it's you know, racialized identity is oppressed. And, you know, how do you deal with those kinds of things if you don't have people who, who see the issues for what they were and what they are? And, and this connection between Gramsci and Marcuse and, and uh, I mean, from Marx to Gramsci in the, in the 1840s to Gramsci and Marcuse in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, the crossing over. And, and by the way, and how Hitler, while throwing out, forcing the Frankfurt School to move, but yet the Nazis adopting the Frankfurt School's MOs in order to create dissension in Germany to take power. And, and then those people that help them gain power, now they're the first that are expendable under the totalitarian regimes.
Yeah, well, we're you starting know? to see that here, too. Well, listen, a lot of people believe that. Under the plea of free speech, you had a guy like Herbert Marcuse, you know, saying that tolerance is extended to policies, policies, conditions, and modes of behavior, which should not be tolerated. We saw that. We saw that last year and the year before. I'm not saying that George Floyd's death wasn't tragic. I'm not saying that at all. But all the modalities were in place for the explosion that took place. And then you had people who were saying, reporting peaceful demonstrations. Well, hardly. Uh, well, listen, and as the rabbis, uh, the rabbis throughout history taught, do you know what you see or do you see what you know? Those are two very different ways of apprehending the world. Wow, yes. And listen, we're in this crazed moment with the removal of monuments. If you take a world, and this gets into a lot of Marxist ideology here, in the world of Marxist thought, there is nothing but pure political power. There's no history. The history is erased or it's rewritten. History, history ends up becoming a mere cultural sham. And, and you rewrite history as you need to in order to trick people. And in their view, it could be trick people who they want to, to view themselves as oppressed, uh, view themselves as downtrodden. So you have, listen, I don't want anybody to think that I'm a supporter of the Confederacy during the Civil War. I'm not. But, you know, you take down Confederate statues in New Orleans and Charlottesville and in Knoxville, Tennessee and outside of Nashville, Tennessee. What does it say? There are a few things that it says. And one is the statement of pure political power. And Senator Tim Scott, who's a black man, said, listen, you know, we do all of this stuff. You know, how do we learn from whence we came? If you destroy history, you cannot learn from it which right. means you cannot so, go forward. So as my brother Matt has written, if culture is politics, and if politics is power, then it's very simple. Then you have to reach the conclusion that the monuments that are sought for removal do indeed acquire some dangerous capacities for uh, of locomotion. And they gotta be removed. And it's the same thing. Getting back to the freedom of speech piece, it's the same thing with the removal of people who are deemed to be offensive speakers. It's the same strategy for eliminating political dissent. You know, I remember I remember reading a biography of uh, Frederick Douglass, and and a line that really caught me, as best I can remember. He wrote that liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. And that's what we call free speech. We're at a nexus in history. Are we going to cross that Rubicon or are we going to uphold the principles of freedom of speech? Uh, listen, Alana, some speech is foolish, okay? Sure. Do I want people to censor their rudeness or foolishness? Or as my father used to say, you know, a small town lawyer who said, listen, kid, if anything, the Constitution guarantees your right to be stupid. You have that constitutional right and you can't take that away from anyone. So we're in an era right now where a lot of people are demanding to silence free speech 
But the rabbis say, in a place where nobody's being a human being, be a mensch, act like a human being, which means stand up and be counted, do something. And that's the that that I think is a good place to to wrap this up because it it gives our audience, it gives our listeners something very practical to do. Right. And I'm going to say, well, I'm just going to add one thing, if I may. It'll just take one minute. If you want to salvage free speech, then you got to cultivate a spirit of resolute opposition to its suppression. If you don't do that, then the other side's going to win. Rabbi Jonathan Hausman, it has been a great pleasure to have you on the show. This has been a very interesting conversation, and I want to thank you so much for joining me on The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud, and you've been listening to The Voice of a Nation on the America Out Loud Network.